Chuck Swindoll tells the story about a man who bought fried chicken. Think about Fred, right? <laughs> fried chicken dinners for himself and his date late one afternoon. But the guy at the fast food place inadvertently gave him the proceeds from the day's business, a bag of money, much of it cash, instead of fried chicken. After driving to their picnic site, Swindell tells, the two of them sat, sat down to enjoy some chicken. They discovered a whole lot more than chicken, over $800. Now, many people would have kept the money and bought themselves a lunch much nicer than KFC. But this man did something unusual. He quickly put the money back into the car, drove all the way back. Mr. Clean got out, walked in, and became an instant hero. By then, the manager was frantic. The guy with the bag of money looked the manager in the eye and said, I want you to know I came by to get a couple of chicken dinners and wound up with this money here. Well, the manager was thrilled to death, he said. Let me call, he said, let me call the newspaper. I'm going to have you, your, your picture put in the local newspaper. You're one of the most honest men I've ever heard of. To which the man quickly responded, oh, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Then he leaned in closer and he whispered, you see, the woman I'm with is not my wife. <laughs> Harder to find than lost cash is a pure heart, and seeing God is an idea that we as humans have been attracted to, trying to see God in things and everything else. In 1978, Mrs. Rubio is rolling a burrito when she notices skillet burns on the tortilla resembling the, the mournful face of Jesus Christ. Shortly thereafter, 8,000 curious pilgrims trek to the Rubio's small stucco house in rural New Mexico to view the sacred icon, and Mrs. Rubio leaves her house unlocked so that visitors may freely enter and examine the tortilla. In 1980, an Oklahoma evangelist, probably know him well, Oral Roberts, spots a 900-foot Jesus straddling a hospital complex he is building next to his university. Roberts, interpreting the divine image as a plea for financial assistance, appeals to his followers and nets millions of dollars in donations. In 1981... Christ appears crucified on a garage door in California and draws 8,000 visitors in one weekend. The image is later found to be caused by reflections from two streetlights that emerged with shadows of a bush and a real estate sign. Were these moments uh, where people saw God? Probably not. Probably not. But Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. When Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, he was declaring blessedness on those who are pure at the very center of their being, at the very source of their every activity, not those who are merely pure on the surface. The Bible says, the Lord sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We all perceive purity differently. And I think Mike can probably appreciate this. Sales of bottled water in this country exploded in recent years, largely as a result of a public perception of purity driven by advertisements and packaging labels featuring pristine glaciers and crystal clear mountain springs. 
But bottled water sold in the United States isn't necessarily cleaner or safer than most tap water, according to a four-year scientific study by National Resource Development Center. So Mike might say amen to that. <laughs> we all have different perceptions and misunderstandings of purity. But one thing is pretty clear, an impure heart causes spiritual blindness. An impure heart causes spiritual blindness. Maybe you heard about the blind man who walks into a store with his seeing eye dog, and all of a sudden he picks up the leash and begins swinging the dog over his head, around and around, and the manager runs up to the man and asks, what are you doing? And the blind man replies, just looking around. That was a memory of Tim Thiessen. I, in his birthday this last week, I, I think he would have appreciated that story quite well. But an impure heart causes spiritual blindness. Sin blinds us to the will of God in our life. Spiritual blindness, it, 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 it causes us not to be able to see the will of God for His church. Sin blinds us to the will of God for this world as well. And sin blinds us to the reality of sin's consequences. It's not going to be really that bad. <laughs> like the story one day at a busy airport, the passengers on a commercial airliner are seated waiting for the pilot to show up so they can get underway. And the pilot and co-pilot finally appear in the rear of the plane and begin walking up to the cockpit through the center aisle. Both appear to be blind. <laughs> The pilot is using a white cane, bumping into passengers right and left as he stumbles down the aisle. The co-pilot is using a guide dog. Both have their eyes covered with sunglasses. At first, the passengers don't react, thinking that it must be some sort of practical joke. After a few minutes, though, the engines start revving, and the airplane begins moving down the runway. The passengers look at each other with some uneasiness. They start whispering among themselves and look desperately to the stewardesses for reassurance. Yet the plane starts accelerating rapidly and people begin panicking and some passengers are praying. And as the plane gets closer and closer to the end of the runway, the voices are becoming more and more hysterical. When the plane has less than about 20 feet of runway left, there is a sudden change in the pitch of the shouts as everyone screams at once. At the very last moment, the plane lifts off and is airborne. Up in the cockpit, the, the co-pilot breathes a sigh of relief and tells the pilot, you know, one of these days the passengers aren't going to scream and we aren't going to know when to take off. <laughs> Spiritually blind people have no moral navigational system. They are completely completely at the mercy of others. <laughs> they can neither discern truth nor understand the full consequences of the depraved behavior. So then, what is purity of heart? Being pure in heart doesn't mean being perfect in performance. No one can attain perfection in that way, and if they could, they wouldn't see God. They would be God. <laughs> in fact, there are two meanings for this phrase that I want to bring to our attention today. The first and more common meaning is keeping our hearts in line with our actions and vice versa. Being pure in heart in this sense means that what we do truly reflects who we are. The second meaning of being pure in heart is that we are focused. And I'll explain that one later. But let's look first at this, this idea that what we do reflects who we really are. Let me share with you a couple of examples 
and have a common theme running through them. And hopefully this will cast some light on what being pure in heart means. So have you ever been helped by someone only to find out that they helped you because they wanted to get something from you? Sometimes we expect this, and it's perfectly acceptable. We help our employers so that we will be paid by them. If they didn't pay us, we wouldn't help them for long. <laughs> it's a mutual expectation. But what I'm referring to here is, is called ulterior motives. <laughs> someone tells you that they are helping you for one reason, but they have another reason that they are hiding from you. It's the kind of help that offered freely at the time, we later find out actually came with a price. And more often than not, that price is far higher than the help given. Ulterior motives. Or have you ever had someone say they would do one thing and then do another? This isn't always bad either. Jesus told a story in Matthew uh, chapter 21 about a man who had two sons. He went to the first son and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. And uh, in, in verse 29, we see the response, I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what, this, what his father wanted? And they all answered the first in that gospel of Matthew chapter 21. And neither son followed through on his promise, but the first son still did the right thing. He refused to help, but then changed his mind and went to the vineyard. He had the wrong answer, but eventually did the right action. This is eventually a good thing. No one can really call him a liar for not going through with his initial statement. But the second son, the second son, the one with the right answer, but the wrong actions, he lies to make himself look good and then doesn't do what he promised. He is certainly a liar and worse because the consequences of this kind of deceitfulness go far beyond the son's laziness. What if another uh, worker was hurt and because the son wasn't there, no one was there to help him? Making a promise and not going through with it is just as wrong and just as potentially damaging. So the theme with those two examples there running through the, those two examples, the common theme is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is the opposite of maintaining a pure heart. When our actions speak against our hearts or, or when what we say doesn't match up with what we do, we are guilty of hypocrisy. And Jesus saved his harshest criticism for the sin of hypocrisy. In Matthew 23, uh, it was alluded to this portion of Scripture in Sunday school class, actually. Jesus goes on the offensive with the rulers and religious leaders of the day. The passage contains what have been called the seven woes, <laughs> or seven different indictments of the ruler's behavior. The, the word hip, hypocrites comes up six times, each time reflecting a type of hypocrisy in here in this portion of Scripture of Matthew 23. Here's an example of two of the woes. In verse 25, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. 
Verse 27, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. In each case, Dishes clean on the outside, but filthy in the middle. Tombs painted white to hide the inner corruption. Jesus is calling the leaders out for not keeping their hearts pure. They look good on the outside, but inside they are full of sin. It reminds me of a a saying or a quote that I I, uh, found. Painting the water pump doesn't purify the water. (laughs) Keep that in mind. And this is true here. Jesus takes them to task for this. And because their hypocrisy wasn't just damaging to them, it affected the whole nation since these leaders were in charge of teaching God to the people. Now, we are used to priests and ministers and pastors going and doing the spiritual teaching. But in the Judaism that day, the priests served at the temple and maintained the rituals and sacrifices. It was the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, that were supposed to teach the people about God. And they were concentrating on making themselves look good instead of pointing the people to God. And to make matters worse, their hypocrisy was spreading to the general population. Jesus actually condemns them for this in another of the woes in verse 15 of that same gospel, Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. (laughs) Wow! We're not used to hearing Jesus speak such strong words. And he doesn't stop with calling them a son of hell. Other terms in the chapter include blind guides, snakes, brood of vipers. (laughs) He doesn't hold back. And I share all this to make a point. Jesus could not stand hypocrisy in any of its forms. These woes were directed against the religious leaders of the day, but the underlying message applies to us all. Those who want to see God. That is both being with Him in heaven and seeing Him at work in our lives here on earth. We must strive to avoid the sin of of hypocrisy at all costs. Is hypocrisy forgivable? (laughs) Of course it is. Newsflash, all our sin can be forgiven by Christ when we confess it to Him. But that doesn't detract from our need of keeping our hearts pure before Him. I shared earlier that there are two different means for being pure in heart. The first, of course, avoiding hypocrisy, which is the most common view. But being pure in heart can also mean being focused. Being focused. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, thank you for asking. I'll let you know. Being focused on the right thing can make the difference between life and death. Being focused on the right thing can mean the difference between life and death. Uh, Warren Bennis, an American scholar, author, and organizational consultant who wrote many books on leadership, shared an interesting story in one of his books. He writes, The flying Walendas are perhaps the world's greatest family of aerialists and tightrope walkers. I was struck with Carl Walenda's uh, capacity for, concentrating, uh, for concentration on the intention, the task, and the decision. I was even more intrigued when several months later, Walenda fell to his death while walking a tightrope without a safety net between two high-rise buildings in San Juan, Puerto Rico. 
Later, Walenda's wife said that before her husband had fallen, for the first time since she had known him, he had been concentrating on falling instead of on walking the tightrope. He had personally supervised the attachment of the guide wires, which he had never done before. So often, often the difference between success and failure, between life and death, is the direction we're looking what we're focusing on. I like to take uh, sports photos. I uh, take my camera, and North Clackamas Christian School knows me as uh, the guy with the camera. Um, I go around a lot, a lot of the athletic events and try to get pictures of the athletes doing different things, and then I make them available to the parents because they don't have their cameras. And a lot of them have come up to me before and said, thank you for taking pictures because I'm just watching my child and I forget to take pictures. And so I make them available in doing that. And so when I want a good picture, I'll, I'll, I'll pick my subject from the camera. I'm looking through the, uh, the lens there and, and aim the camera at it and make sure the autofocus dot and, or dots is, is, is on the subject to make sure the subject is clear. And if you try to use two different objects for focusing, neither will turn out well. The best pictures focus on one subject and let the others kind of blend in. The background distortion actually adds to the quality of the picture. A blurred background to an action shot emphasizes the speed of the subject. Many times in, in photographing uh, Brianna running some of the uh, 400 meters or the 800 meter, she would run and I'd get her in focus and everything else would be a blur behind her and make her look like she's really running pretty fast. And a blurry horizon brings out the features of a close-up. Those of you with iPhones know about this with the portrait mode. And you can use that, and it kind of blurs the background, and you have the subject in focus. Jesus is calling us to bring that focus to our faith and to our hearts. He wants us to focus our spiritual attention on God alone. And we do that through Jesus Christ. We can learn about God through His creation, but it's only a blurry backdrop to God Himself. We can learn bits and pieces about God from other religions, but focusing on them puts Christ out of focus. And that's why he told us in John chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. When we focus our attention on Jesus, we are seeing God in our midst. One of his, uh, his names is Emmanuel, <laughs> means God with us. He isn't just God's representative. He is God in the flesh, and He came to earth to point us back to our Creator. We can't see Him in the flesh now, but if, if we ever want to, we have to focus our hearts on Him. We can't just lightly acknowledge Him and have, we, we have to fix our eyes on Him. And through the lens of the Word of God, we can focus our hearts on Him as well. There's no other person on the face of the earth that can help us really see God. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And in a culture that treats spirituality as a, a mystic vending machine, you know, come buy what you want, mix and match to suit your needs, we are called to give our hearts solely to Jesus Christ. 
In a culture that demands acceptance of every conceivable spiritual path, every imaginable image of God, we are called to stand on the reality that there is, there is one way to God, and that way is Jesus Christ. We are to show the world that we trust in Jesus, and Jesus alone to be our guide to God. Now, we still need our instincts. We still need our traditions, our upbringing. We still need our families and our schools and our governments and all the other institutions that help us in life. But when it comes to pointing the way to God, all these and everything else must bow before the one way to God, His Son, Jesus Christ. When we take this stand, we will see God. We will see Him at work in our lives now, and we will see Him in heaven for all eternity. So avoid hypocrisy and focus on Jesus. Author uh, Schopenhauer was a German philosopher. And according to Schopenhauer's uh, Law of Entropy, says if you put a spoonful of wine in a barrel full of sewage, you get sewage. If you put a spoonful of sewage in a barrel full of wine, you still get sewage. <laughs> The Bible clearly explains that a little bit of sin taints the whole life. So the question is, how can I possess a life free of hypocrisy? How can I avoid those things? How can I practically live my daily life in the purity of God? I think we can find practical guidance in a portion of Scripture found in Hebrews chapter 12, first three verses. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart." So we need to get into the race. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We need to get into the race, the letter R of race. Remove the obstacles. Remove the obstacles. In verse 1, the second part of that, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So realize your sin and its cost. Confess it. Fight the temptation and put it behind you. Give it to God. In other words, remove the obstacles, weights, and, and excuses, and follow God. <laughs> a couple from Bakersfield, California, purchased a new boat, but they were having serious problems. No matter how hard they tried, they couldn't get the boat going, and it was sluggish no matter which way they turned or how much power was applied. And after an hour of trying to make it go, they, they put it to a nearby marina, hoping someone would, could tell them what was wrong. A thorough check on the, on the top side of the boat revealed everything was in perfect working condition. The engine ran fine, the outdrive went up and down, and the propeller was the correct size and pitch. Then one of the marina guys jumped in the water to check underneath, and he came up choking with laughter. Under the boat, still strapped securely in place, was the trailer. <laughs> ridiculous, right? but not more ridiculous than many believers who are puttering around wondering why their Christian life isn't working. It's simple. They have attached sin beneath the surface of their lives that needs to be removed. 
First John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our, us our sins, purify us from all unrighteousness. We need to remove those obstacles. We also need to accept the challenge. A in race. Accept the challenge. Accept the challenge and call and the call of God to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Realize that the Christian life is serious. It's not a game. It's a divine call. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. So, remove the obstacles, accept the challenge, and then the letter C in race, concentrate on God's Word. Concentrate on knowing and obeying God's Word and becoming just like Jesus. Talked about that in Sunday school class too. What does it look like to imitate Christ? And Scripture tells us those things, what it looks like. And probably the go-to answer would be, look at the fruits of the Spirit. (laughs) And we can look at that list. But don't take your eyes off of the prize. Jesus is our hope. He is our example. He models how we are to live. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So concentrate on God's Word. And then finally, letter E in race, endure difficulty and opposition. Endure difficulty and opposition. Be willing to endure these things in view of the cross and what Jesus did for you. When the going gets tough, the tough, well, yeah, get going, but the tough, all, don't just get going. The tough or faithful remember Jesus and put their trust in Him. Remember that. Put your trust in Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses, uh, verse 58 says, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So it's time to get into the race. It's time to to remove the obstacles, to accept God's challenge, to concentrate on Jesus, and endure hardship by remembering what He did for you. This is how you avoid hypocrisy and focus on Jesus, which will help you develop and keep a pure heart. And with a pure heart, you will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Going to have Annie and Ali come on up. They're going to lead us in the next couple songs. And as they do, I just want to encourage you to spend this time worshiping God for who He is, what He has done for you, and realize what He wants to do through you as well, too. And the way He can do that, you best use that pure heart of yours, keeping it pure. There's a saying that I remember a pastor in our conference would always say in his prayer. He would always pray that uh, he would keep him clean and close to God. And that would be my prayer for all of us, to remain clean and close to God. To remain clean is to remain pure in heart, to keep that before God. And so as we sing these songs, I trust God will continue to speak to your hearts. And if you need to do a little business with God, do that while we sing these songs.